So uh, Genesis, here we go. We're going to be in, in Genesis for a few weeks uh, now. Uh, and, uh, and, and there are many ways in which we can go with Genesis. There are many themes. All of the Bible's themes start in Genesis. Uh, it's the trajectory, the themes, the, the, the trajectories, the, the, the promises, the, um, the hopes, the cursing, the blessing, the, the everything that we get that, that, that unfolds in this big redemptive story starts here in Genesis. So, man, this is such a treat to be able to, uh, to, to preach this. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, it's terrifying to preach Genesis. So it should be a great time because there's so much that you do. I was talking to Jack earlier this uh, today even. I said, when you choose to go a direction with Genesis, you've chosen nine other directions not to go because there's so much in this that you could do. So uh, for the sake of our time, we're going to try and keep it limited to uh, something that's digestible here. But it is such a wonderful thing. I've had so much joy preparing this and seeing God and Christ in new ways that I hope are helpful for us today. So one of our practices that we have here is that we believe that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. Our King, our Lord, our God speaks and reveals Himself in His Word. And so as we hear Him speak to us, we do well to, uh, to, uh, to, to stand in a, in a posture of reverence. So if you are able to, I'd ask that you stand out of reverence for God's word as we, re- we read what he has revealed to us here in Genesis 1. I'll only be reading uh, the first few verses here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God uh, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, as I said, Genesis is the beginning of the Bible's themes and trajectories. Uh, but it opens in a very strange way. Um, so I want you to kind of maybe put on your creative lens, your, your imagination lens, your, your artist lens here. And, and it's as, as though the story opens. There's this story here, and, and the curtains are opening. And what do we hear at the beginning of any good musical? We hear the, the opening, the intro. We hear this song, and that's what we're hearing here. This is a song of creation. Uh, it's an apologetic song of creation. It's not as though the curtains open to the whole story and God says, I'm sorry. No, the apologetic is that he is proving, he's defending his inherent worth. He is, he is proving, he's defending that he is the foundation of all reality. So it is a song and it's a really intense song. Uh, but it's spoken as it was intended to. It's spoken, it's sung, it's written in a way, in a language for the common man. And so while we are going to be jumping into these ideas that are, that are transformational to our worldview, are transformational to the way we read the Bible, are transformational to how we believe Christ, and how is he the answer to all things, we're going to be talking about things that have implications that are way up there in the clouds or way deep in the foundation of, uh, of, of our lives. But what a joy it is that it's been written in the words that we can understand. And so we'll enter in that way. Genesis was written as a song, but I, but I love this. As songs go, uh, it is, uh, it is uh, to the, its contemporary culture, it is a very dissonant song. It, it doesn't mesh with the rest. It doesn't play well with the other songs uh, because it's a song that's spoken, it's a song that's sung, song that's written very confrontationally. See, Genesis was written with the intention of interacting 
with, of confronting, of correcting the contemporary cultural narratives surrounding it. See, and the key word here is contemporary. As we read the Bible, we need to make sure, especially in Genesis, that we are reading it and understanding it in light of its contemporary culture. See, Moses wrote uh, uh, Genesis for us so that, so that we would understand God, we would understand Christ. But first off, he wrote it for an original audience. He wrote it for a people going into the land of Canaan. He wrote it for a people in the na- ancient Near Eastern context. And so when these people read this song, when this people heard this song spoken in their religious gatherings, they heard it in the context of their contemporary culture. And now maybe going, maybe a bit crass, their, their contemporary culture did not have a copy of, of, of Darwin's Origin of Species out and they compare and contrast. They didn't have Stephen Hawking speaking to maybe how long was this or that day. What they had speaking, though, in Canaan was a system of polytheism. They went into this land, and they looked around, and everyone around them had a different God. And this song is sung to prove that this God is bigger, is better, is before those gods. And that's a very different song. And when he speaks uh, to, to these people, he speaks a word of hope. He speaks a word of comfort, but he speaks a word of authority. This God, in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, in this song, it opens up with nothing other than this God is sovereign and powerful and has chosen, because of his love, to do something. He has chosen to reveal himself. Now, we're only going to go through the first six days today. So we don't get man, but we are going to see the glory of God in these first six days. We're going to learn a lot about this God who shows up on the scene. Well, he doesn't. Uh, He shows up in their literature in a very confrontational way. And so what we're going to learn of God is that he is a sovereign God who conquers the chaos. He is a sovereign God who orders creation. And he is a loving God who recreates through his word. So let's jump into this. Uh, it's going to be a fun one. The Bible reorients us back to reality. Genesis sets the stage by starting literally from nothing to build a right, good framework for understanding ourselves, our world, and our God. You see, Genesis speaks to God, to the soul to the purpose. It may speak to science. Uh, it may speak to astrophysics. It may speak to a uh, uh, historical climate of the time. But first off, it speaks to God, our soul, and the purpose of humanity. And so I want us to hear that when we go through Genesis. Genesis then was and still is first an authoritative word of comfort and of hope. I've spoken to it as comfort and hope in Canaan. But then as people go into exile, the Israelites, God's people go into exile, and they ask this question, what's the point here? I thought we were God's people, and now we're in exile. They can read this and understand where they came from, understand what the plan is, understand that it's not over, there's still more. As exiles, it can give hope. And now, as we see on this side of Christ, as exiles here today, we're in the same spot. The same themes, the same promises, the same uh, God, the same foreshadowing of Christ is there for us, except we have Christ. We know Christ. And so I hope 
that whatever the chaos is in your life, whatever maybe, uh, maybe the other gods are in your life, whatever the polytheism of this culture, whether it's consumerism or it's sports or it's work or whatever it is, whatever those gods are, that we can read Genesis and not figure out how we could say something to those gods, but we can just look at this God and say, he is sufficient, he is, he is powerful, he is loving, he is almighty. So, now let's jump in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, right here, I'm going to look at this idea that the world was, out for, was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. If you want to sound really snooty and have a really fun thing to say, okay, form and void. In the Hebrew here, uh, the, the world was, uh, this is fun, tohu vabohu, there you go, was, was, was without form and void. There was nothing. It was there. Now, now the Babylonians are the culture uh, the contemporary culture of when this is written. This is something that, 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 that will be compared to this creation story. What did the Babylonians have to say then? What, what, was, what was that moment in history? What was their creation story? And how is Genesis, the song of creation, confronting it and clarifying it? Well, there's a, there's a slide that we can have here. The Babylonians had a creation epic called Enuma Elish. And I'm going to read some of this for us. Uh, so in this, in this epic, their head god, his name is Marduk. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that picture up there? Can we get that up there? Sorry. Um, the, uh, his, the, the, the head god was Marduk. Uh, he's the one on the left, the one that looks like he's the killer. Uh, and it was, uh, he was the creator of heaven and earth, but he didn't just create it out of nothing. It all began when Marduk battled the ocean goddess, Tiamat. Uh, so there is she. She's there in... She's chaos. That's really what it is. They believe that there is this, this pre, pre, uh, primordial chaos, this, this thing happening that had to be con conquered. And whoever conquered this chaos was the God. Marduk happened to be it. So I'm going to read part of their, their creation story. Listen to the resonances here. It says, with an ill wind, so this is kind of, with an ill wind, he made Tiamat eat this wind. Maybe not so much the spirit that was hovering over the water, but similar. He made her eat it. What ends up happening is she kind of explodes, and then he takes the two parts of her. He subdued her and snuffed out her life. He flung down her watery carcass and, he, and took his stand upon it. He said, you go here, you go here, and I'm going to stand here as that God. I am the head God. Half of her he set up and made as a cover, as heaven. He crossed, as he crossed heaven and he inspected its firmament to see if it was good. He then made positions for the gods. He established in constellation the stars. He made the moon appear. He separated the waters, Tiamat, claimed authority over her by standing on her and, and, and saying, I am the God who conquers the chaos, and then decided to set up a house for all of the gods in the constellations. It sounds very similar. This is what the people, the believers, the Israelites, this is what their culture is telling them is truth. And we have a very different way of saying that. We don't have time. We have other creation stories that happen now. But this is what they believed. And so our author writes the story in a way that's mindful to debunk all of that. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There may have been some chaos. There may not have been some chaos. I'm not sure it's scientifically telling us and describing the exact nature of this chaos, 
but in poetic fashion as Genesis 1 is, as a song that Genesis is, it is saying, this God is bigger than the chaos. This God was before the chaos. This God created out of nothing. There was nothing to conquer. There was no fight to happen. There was no war. There was no loser and no winner. This God existed and didn't take matter of, of his slain enemies and create. He spoke authoritatively as only this God can. He spoke out of nothing and there was. We read that. Verse 3, and God said, let there be, I'll just, you fill in the blank. He's going to keep saying this. Let there be and there was. This God has different power. This God is far above. There's no battle in Genesis 1. There is no, there is no one, no other God to fight. That's because from the beginning, God, our creator God, Elohim, was not simply the most powerful God. He was almighty. This word here that we see for God, you can, you can see this in your, uh, in, in, in your scripture journals there. Maybe circle it and write this out because this is really helpful. Um, Elohim, this is the word for God. So, okay, in the Old Testament, you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name of God, Yahweh. That is the name of God. Whenever you see that in the English, that's what's there in the Hebrew. Uh, this word God, it, it fluctuates a little bit, but here, God is Elohim. Now, I put that up on the screen. You write that. You maybe have heard this. Uh, there's something fascinating here. I won't go too far into it. Um, just go with the I am at the end of this, im. That is in the Hebrew way. That is the, the Hebrew way of making something plural. So we use the letter S, cat, cats, right? They say, you know, uh, Elohim. It's plural. However, all of the verbs that they use for this are singular. So it's like he's saying that there are many of this Elohim doing this one thing here. Why am I going into this? Because the Bible, in its, in its literary nature, the words that are there, the historical way in which people communicated way back when this was written, they understood that there is a, a, a plurality. I'll suggest a threeness to this God. There is a plural God and then oneness. He does something. This plural God, the threeness of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have created here. Where is Christ in Genesis? We don't have sin. Elohim. He is there from the beginning of the foundation. He is one with God. He is creating with God. Jesus is not an accident. Jesus is not a backup plan to our sin. We're not even there yet. I don't want to get there. But I want to set it up because we could say, well, this was perfect. Oops, God, let's put in backup plan Jesus. Jesus was there creating for his glory. We're going to find out. John speaks to us. He is the word. He is the light. And he is there for the glory of God. So this is very powerful, very controversial. I'm just going to boil it down because it's really nice to think of ancient Near Eastern and the Babylonians are so silly and all other gods are so dumb. You have gods that need to be slain. You have gods that are no match for this God. This God speaks reality into existence. So if you are chasing your gods, if you are chasing things like you're wondering when you can get back to your work so that you can actually continue to advance, there's a God behind that. It may not be your work. It may be something else there. Maybe you want to be that God, that master. 
Maybe something, some, something discouraging has happened to you this week where you had a plan and you went off the plan. Oftentimes going off the plan reveals the fact that we thought we were God because we're really frustrated and we want to figure out how to throw our wrath at that plan. This God is above the chaos. This God is, is preeminent. This God is above all things. You can, you can give your stuff to him. He creates out of nothing. He can sure take your stuff and recreate it. He can do something bigger than that. There's hope in this God. It's not just a God coming at you. It's also a God coming at you with his love. And this is why he creates. Because a God like this doesn't need to do anything. He's glorious in himself, but he chooses to express himself creatively, beautifully in creation. He's not simply the most powerful God. He is the Almighty. The poetry of Genesis 1 invites us to understand that God was already above the waters. He was already above the chaos. And from that pre-existing authority, God spoke. Let there be no fight, no materials, no stated amount of time. He simply spoke, and there was creation out of nothing. And with a word, then, he speaks and he reveals not simply that he can do stuff, but that he's good. But Elohim didn't simply create, like, I don't know if you know Jackson Pollock. We've got a, uh, we've got a, a picture there. This is Jackson Pollock. I feel like if I reference something that weird, we need to. He just throws stuff. Master, painter, I don't understand at all what his art is all about. Um, please help me if you are offended. Um, please enlighten me here. And he, you know, with his sweet cigarettes throwing stuff, you know, at the, that's, that sometimes I feel like we're just like, God's just like, bazam, 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 here we go, there it is. There's an order to this. There's a structure to this. It is a song, and like a song, there are verses. There are, there are um, choruses. There is a structure to Genesis 1. And, and I would suggest that maybe we can view it this way, that maybe it's not just this random haphazard uh, a, a painting on a canvas, but maybe God does set up three canvases, and then with those, he paints something in. Maybe if you, if you go with maybe some other language, he, he, he builds three buckets and he dumps and fills things up uh, in those. So let's go through the structure here of Genesis. I am going to just focus on day one, but I wanted to give us the whole picture of, uh, of, of the first six days here. We read in verse three that, that, um, that God, the Elohim, he creates uh, light and darkness. He says, he says, let there be light. There was light. And he, saw that it was, and he saw that it was good. Now, day two, uh, if we go down, day two, we see that he makes the sea and the sky. This is in verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Oh, all the Babylonians are saying, wait a second. So, he, so he's deciding to do this? He's not defeating Taima? He's not conquering? No, no, no. He's speaking the separation into existence. He's not fighting anyone. He's creating it this way. Now we go down to verse 9 and we see day 3. He creates the fertile earth. Let the, uh, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the, let the dry land appear. And so these are kind of the canvases or, or those buckets that God has. This is our structure here. I think we can read this over and over and be like, okay, he's doing the same thing. It's almost word for word every day and different things are happening. There's a structure here. God is creating these spaces, these canvases, light and dark, sea and sky, a fertile earth. And then he gives them purpose. He fills them out 
a bit. He's not just saying, here we go. There's purpose to this. So we'll look at this. Day four then, he goes back to this first canvas, light and dark, light and darkness. And he puts in it lights for the day and night. Verse 14, he said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be a sign for the seasons, for the days, for the years. And he goes on, I, I will point this one out. And let them be uh, lights in the expanse of heaven, give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. This is verse 16. He made two great lights. We know what they are. What are they? If I ask my kids this, what are they going to say? Sun and moon. He made the sun and the moon. So let's go read about the sun and the moon right now. And he made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That is not sun and moon. The word sun and moon in their culture were the names of other gods. In this song, we're controversially skipping that intentionally. We don't hear it today. They heard it that day, and it was offensive. He created, I'm not even going to mention them. This is ridiculous. That's kind of the tone. He created, he created those things that everybody knows about. He didn't create those gods because they're not real gods. So if I say sun and moon, you're going to think that I created the rest of the pantheon. No, no, no. He's above those. Those are just things. This God holds it together. Isn't that amazing? And he does that on day four. But then the light was there on day one. What is happening here? How was the light there? And now he's creating the things of light. Some of these questions should come up in our mind. This order is weird. God is sustaining his creation. God is the source of it existing. This is what we should hear through the themes. Not get stuck in the Oh, man, this is so repetitive. There are are patterns that are being developed here intentionally in this song, and they're controversial, and they reshape how we understand God. God is sovereign and powerfully, graciously reveals himself and his goodness in creation. Let's go on to verse 20, day five. What does he do? He pulls out the canvas called Sea and Sky, and he starts to paint on it. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. that's great. Verse 24, day six, he picks up the canvas, the fertile earth, and he fills it. He begins filling it. We're not going to get to day seven where he completes it, puts a capstone on it. We'll just get to day six here. Verse 24, let them bring, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creepy things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And on each one of these days, beginning with the evening, going into the morning, God looks at it and he says this, This is Hebrew word. This is tov. This is good. We can know God's goodness by his creation. He expresses himself that way. This is the intent. I'm not sure the intricacies of how this all came together. I'm not sure the author of this song intended for me to wonder that. But he definitely wanted me to know that this God creates and he's good. Well, I want to look at one of these created things specifically. I want to focus on the remainder of our time on the created, uh, on, on, uh, of our time on the created light. It shows us a lot in Genesis 1. Uh, we see light, and in the first day we see light again revisited in the fourth day. There's something going on here with this light. Just the wording is, is a bit strange. Uh, verse 3, and the God said, let there be light, and there was light. We read on to discover the quality of this light. And then God saw that the light was good. 
See, this is not uh, telling us that the light was placed rightly. You know, like God's sitting there, he's like, mm, you know, in the Trinity, you know, they're all like, you know, okay, let's, you know, move this around. It's like a little bit to the left, a little bit. This is good, right? Now, he's not saying it that way. He's giving it a moral quality. I think there's, 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 there, there's a sense that he's saying, what I have done is good in itself. But he's also speaking some kind of moral quality into this. I've been, been really helped with a, man, Hebrew scholar, just fantastic, Alan Ross. I'm going to quote him right now. He says, that which God calls into, existent, into existence at the outset is light, immediately changing the world enveloped in darkness. Let there be light, and it changes everything. It's natural light. It's physical light. But, he suggests, it's much more. The Bible shows again and again that light and darkness signify mutually exclusive realities, especially in spiritual matters of good and evil. I think he has a good point here because he says, let there be light, but doesn't actually hang the sun for a couple more days. It says, let there be light, but then somehow holds the knowledge of this light and darkness from mankind. There is goodness and there is evil in this world. This is one theme that is set up right here in the first chapter of Genesis. And this is the one that is going to permeate the entire story. This is redemptive history. There is good. There is evil. We found out what evil is and went that way and still go that way. But there's hope because light is coming. God's illuminating work on the first day reminds us of three truths. And maybe more. What God does is good. His creative act is good. What God reveals to us of himself is good. And in the midst of darkness, there is light. I think that's the one that, that begins to hit home. In the midst of your darkness, there is light. How do I know this? I'm not just reading this and saying, oh, that'll preach. Because I have more than just one page of my Bible. You don't have this in your scripture journal if you have another Bible. Uh, if you have a scripture journal, you can write John 1 because we're going to go there. If you have a Bible, uh, you can go flip over to there. I think also we have it up on the screen here. What I want to do here is uh, occasionally, <laughs> most often, occasionally there is a text that actually just kind of explains itself. It doesn't just say stuff. It also explains itself. So maybe I just want to set this up and give us some space here because I, I just don't know how to preach John 1 better than John 1 presents itself in light of Genesis 1. So I want to give us some space. I'll be reading John 1, 1 through 14 um, slowly. But there's some themes that are set up in Genesis by God, Father, Son, Spirit, in creation that are intended for us to continue on. There is light that is spoken. This light is good. This light is illuminating. Uh, there, is a, there is a word by which it is spoken. This word is a spoken word. We are reading uh, uh, an inspired word the Bible, but then there's one more word that we find out in John 1 is there is an incarnate word, which means a word that took on flesh and became physical. The word that was spoken at creation became a real person, Jesus Christ, and this was all for his glory. So I want to read this slowly. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was, he was in the beginning with God. And things were made, th- uh, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's so good. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome him. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. I love that verse. It switches from just talking about light and the word to now saying him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Though the light was there, they remained in the dark. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Man, that is powerful. That is amazing. That was thought of at creation. The themes that God was rolling out at, the, at creation. I am speaking with my word. By a word created. Knowing that later we would follow it with, by the word recreated. And that is powerful. This light that is being spoken is illuminating all things. We can see and interact with our realities so that we can know God. We read that at our call, our call to worship in Psalm 33. We can see the world around us so that we know the glory of God. And then he comes in and he says, I am the word. I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am here. I am Jesus. Here's the glory of God. See, Genesis is doing something different. Genesis is singing truth Genesis is speaking to our epistemology, our understanding of truth, our very foundation of what is real. What a beautiful, powerful song. We thought he was just making some stuff. It's a good picture. It's a powerful reality. So what do we do from this? What are some implications of this? I'm not, I'm not sure I have some detailed to-do points, but this means a whole lot for us as we enter in to Uh, our lives as Christians, that we engage at the contemporary culture around us. You see, I think if we understand these truths, these implications first, and we operate off of these, we'll be able to handle all the one-off little little things that we, we come across each and every day. Any kind of critique of Genesis, any kind of critique of Christ, of God, of whatever it might be, I feel like we have these foundational realities at our core and bring people into that. That's going to be more helpful of a proclamation of Christ. So here we go. Here are a couple. One, two, three. Um, While Genesis may speak to science and history, the message of Genesis 1 is sung through song. It is art, and it's, and it's, uh, it's controversial art. Regardless of the form, though, the point is that there is one sovereign God before and above all who out of his love purposed creation to reveal his love. You don't get lost in the form of what's here. The point and the message should be clear. God loves you. He's powerful, and he has made himself known. That's it. That's the point of what we have. Don't get lost in the weeds. Always retain the point. 
Romans 1, 19 through 20. Uh, it, it backs this up. It, it, it goes back and, and explains this, interprets it for us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We can know of God because he has created. What a blessing. I don't think we understand how much of a blessing that is. We can actually know God. We can actually think of God. We're not just walking around like ants that don't know someone's going to crush you or someone's going to help you. It's not us. We can know God. He chose for us to know him, not to know simply about him, but to know him relationally. So when you speak of Genesis or creation, I would, I would suggest, I would urge you to do so in light of the whole story. The story that leads to the recreation through faith in Christ and the new creation at the second coming of Christ. There's creation, but the point is not creator God. That's deism. That, that leaves us somewhere. The point is there is a recreation. There is a fall and a recreation. You can be new. You don't have to be stuck in your sin. You don't have to have all of those problems weighing on you all of the time because there is a God. There is Jesus Christ, the word, the light, who can recreate you, can make you new. And then ultimately, all things will be new. We can long for Jesus. We can say, come, Lord Jesus, and lament our situation now because we know that all things will be made new in the new creation in the days to come. This gives us hope. Speak of the whole story when speaking of Genesis. But maybe if it's something where this is a new topic to you, and this is very strange, and, and it's hard to try and give just a, an intro to Genesis without just going all in, Maybe if you have some of those concerns, maybe culture has weighed in so heavily on your reading of the Bible that it's really hard for you to, to shut that down. I would encourage you, maybe suspend judgment and read it as poetry. Read it with the intent that it had. Maybe don't read it with the other books alongside of it from you know, this decade, <laughs> this century. Maybe read it as it was intended and see how it transforms the understanding. I'm not sure Genesis is going to say we must get rid of our science. I'm not sure Genesis is going to say we must get rid of our theories. But I am sure that Genesis is going to make God very clear if we allow it to. So the other thing that we get when we hit home a little bit more is give your chaos to God. I think that's a real principle we get from this text. Give your chaos to God. We're all in a little bit of chaos that's what makes us human. We confess our sin each week because we can, because we create chaos and we are in chaos, maybe of lesser form. God is neither surprised, defeated, or disinterested in your struggle. And that is comfort. Whatever has happened to you right now is not a surprise to God, and it is not bigger than God. He created out of nothing. He can do something with your stuff. He is, however, above it, and he wants to help you through it. Maybe the final point here, then. In the darkness, seek and follow the light. He says, let there be light, because we need light. He speaks it in creation. He adds it to the evil and the good that is there. And then he gives us that embodied example and proclamation of it through Jesus Christ. Follow him. Follow the light. Why would we run around in the dark all the time? 
Seek and follow the light. So that is one pastor's way of going through Genesis. I promise you if I preach the same text next week, it would be very different because there are so many themes to go through here. And I hope that when we reflect on Genesis 1 as a song of creation, showing us the word, the light, and the glory of God, that we can see in just one way how Jesus is that word, that light, and that glory of God. How God lovingly creates and recreates so that we can be with him in the new creation. This is a beautiful story. This is a beautiful thing that we get. I'm excited to go through this. Uh, each week is just going to be something so, so intense, so good for our framework of how we understand ourselves and our God and our Bible. So this begins our journey as we look, uh, as we look at that, that question of who are we and who is God and what is our purpose today. So let's pray to God. I want to give uh, a bit of uh, space and time for reflection in it. So I'll pray a little bit and give you some space. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us rightly. Though we may not know you truly or fully, we can believe in you rightly because we know what we need to know of you to truly know you relationally. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for giving us an understanding, for giving us uh, your, your inspired word, the Bible, to explain why you created and what you created and what the purpose is for it. Help us as we, uh, as we journey through this, just in our own thoughts today uh, and as we go through this as, as, as a family uh, this uh, fall. Help us to understand you more as the sovereign God who loves, who forgives, and who recreates. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign over all and perfectly uphold your justice. Yet you choose to be gracious to, uh, to us, though we do not deserve it. We thank you that through your power, through your love and our faith, you cover us with your righteousness. I'm just going to give you space right now to just pray. Whatever it is, whatever the chaos is, give it to God. Name it. Say, I give it to you. You are above this. Whatever it is that you are, uh, what, if, you are if there is chaos you're creating, if there's, there's, there's a fight that you're, you're making go, just release it to God. If you need Christ, cry out for him. Forgive me. Give me Christ. time again it gets a little annoying how many times I'm reminded of it that I in subtle ways am trying to create myself as a God opposed to you I want to control I want to uh, I want to uh, decree my laws and everyone follow them I want to go unhindered in all of my activities Please help me. Please help us understand that that's not our role. Our role is to know you, to receive you, and to proclaim you. Please help us in our waywardness and our fumbling in the dark. Please clarify your light increasingly. 